following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we are in the series on 1 Peter. And we started the series a couple of weeks ago. There's study sheets for this series. Uh, if you want to follow along with those, if you're in a life group that's doing those uh, sermon-based studies, that's great. If you're not, that's fine. You can still get the study sheet if you want to just work through that in your, own, in your own time. That's on our website. And you can also go to the church app. If you've got that, just search for Shaw Community Church in the app store and you'll find it. So the study sheets are there. Um, and that's just a good way of continuing to get a bit more out of the series. And so we're, we've called the series Exiles, and we're looking at this whole theme of what it means to be residents in a particular place, residents in the city of Auckland, but citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's really the overarching theme that First Peter is talking about. How do we live in this world with all that that means, all the complexities, all the challenges, all the realities of life, but still live faithfully? as servants and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. How do we inhabit both of those worlds at the same time and do that in a way that's faithful to Jesus? That's kind of the overarching theme of our, of our series. So this morning, if you want to find your way to First Peter chapter 1, uh, we're, we're looking really at the second half of this chapter, picking up in verse 13. Now, Bethany Turner is going to come and read this passage for us this morning. Thank you, Bethany. First chapter 1. Verse 13 and onwards. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Set you call on a father who judges each person person's work impartially. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, for you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen because the creation of the world that was revealed in these last times for your sake through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from your heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached for it to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Thanks, Bethany. Awesome. Yeah, I wanted to push through just to that first verse in chapter 2 there uh, for reasons that will become apparent. Uh, so... A number of years ago, uh, there's, there's a, research, a Christian research company in the U.S. called the Barna Group, and several years ago, they did a, a survey, and they surveyed 1,000 Americans, randomly called up, 1,000 people, surveyed them on the topic of holiness. Interesting topic to do a survey on, right? 
specifically a survey on holiness. And so they weren't, they weren't targeting Christians at all. They just called anyone if they happen to be Christian. Okay, if not, that's fine. They asked the questions anyway. And so here's some of the findings from that survey. 50% of people know someone they believe to be holy. 73% of people say it is possible for people to become holy. Only 21% of people believe they are holy. 35% of people believe that God expects them to be holy. But after all that, only 21% of people even know what holiness means. So that, that's a bit disappointing. Kind of wonder about the rest of the results then, right? Um, and by the way, th- those statistics, I understand, are virtually identical for Christians and non-Christians. So 21% of people, whether they're Christians or not, would say they know what holiness means. And uh, Barna then drew three conclusions from this survey. Number one, most people, including Christians, do not understand holiness. Number two, most people, including Christians, do not desire holiness. Number three, most people, including Christians, do not pursue holiness. So it's a pretty fair summation of where we're at on the subject of holiness. <laughs> and I mean, I know that's an American survey, uh, but there's no reason to think the results would be dramatically different here. I think that that word holiness, it just carries a whole lot of very weird, strange, negative baggage for us, doesn't it? Like even the subject, you're talking about people being holy. I don't know what you think of when that word pops into your head, but often it carries these connotations of very religious people, you know, holy people. It's kind of monks, nuns, people in robes, you know, people swinging incense maybe. It's that kind of religiosity is is where our minds sometimes go with holiness. It's this kind of very archaic, very outdated kind of stuff that's not really a modern form of Christian thinking. Um, Holiness maybe just sounds boring to you. Like to live a holy life, is that anyone's idea of fun? You know, it doesn't sound like you're really setting yourself up for the you know most enjoyable kind of existence, does it? Uh, and then I think in its worst form, probably thinking about being holy, it just sounds like an insult. Like we think of people being holier than thou. That's derogatory. Like that's basically saying you're self-righteous and you're arrogant and you're proud. So it's become a negative term. So along the way, somehow the idea of holiness has picked up all of this baggage, all of this cultural baggage, and now to talk about being holy or living a holy life, we just bring all of this really muddy thinking to it, and it just sounds like not a great deal at all. But I love the words of C.S. Lewis, who says this about holiness, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. So I think he saw something. Somehow he saw something in amidst amidst all this kind of cultural baggage that we have around what it means to be holy. Lewis is looking and saying that there there is something about holiness that is beautiful and even irresistible if we can push past all of the cliches and all of the stereotypes and all of the caricatures about holiness and try to get to the essential heart of what holiness is. There's something there that is deep and profound and transformative and irresistible. And that's the kind of holiness that Peter's talking about in this half of the chapter. This is the subject of the second half of chapter one. It's all holiness. And he spent the first, if you were here last week, he spent the first half of the chapter talking about hope. That was our theme last week. It was all around hope, this living hope that we have, the past hope, the present hope, the hope that secures our future. And now what Peter's saying is on the basis of all of that hope that God has given us, I want you to live a life of holiness. What is our response to hope? It is holiness. So hope is 
is the foundation, if you like. And, and now, what kind of lives should we live out of that? Lives of holiness. And so Peter's going to go through this section and describe to us the nature of holiness, the essential nature of holiness. So what we've got to try and do this morning is put aside all of the cultural baggage, put aside everything that you think that word means, all the connotations swirling around in your head about living a holy life, and try to come back to the biblical heart of holiness. Try to understand afresh from Scripture what it is, how it works, and the difference that holiness can make in our lives. That's our journey this morning. So the heart of what Peter says about holiness is in verse 14 and 15. Just have a look at those verses for a moment. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, there's a big story behind that. That, that those couple of verses, that's the doorway into a really big narrative. I just want to walk through some of this. Peter is, is quoting there from very, very early in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. It's everyone's favorite book, isn't it? Leviticus. One of these days, we're going to do a preaching series on Leviticus, and you're going to love it. Leviticus, you don't have to turn there because half of you won't know where it is. But let me just, let me just read the verse he's quoting from all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, Leviticus 19.2. Uh, God saying, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, the, the basic definition of the word holy is to be set apart. That When you boil it right down, a lot of other stuff going on, but that's the heart of it, to be set apart, to be separated. We might use big religious words like consecrated or sanctified, but that just means to be set apart to be set apart from what is ordinary or, or common or sinful, to be set apart for what is sacred. And so the foundation of holiness that God is laying out here is that God himself is holy. This is where we've got to start. I know that's a simple truth, but any discussion that we have about holiness needs to start with this conviction that God himself is holy. And that means that God himself is set apart. Right? He's set apart. What's he set apart from? Well, he's set apart in the first instance from creation. Right? God created the world. That means he's not part of the creation. He's not part of the created order. There is this distinction between creator and creature that we have to maintain. It's a very important distinction. When that gets blurry, all sorts of theological problems rush in. God is creator. We are the creatures. He is set apart from this world. He is set apart from the created order. He's not one of us. He's not like us, uh, although we are created in his image, but he is in a completely different category. In fact, he's not in a category. This is where you run out of words. He's not in anything that we can try and categorize because he's outside of any category we could come up with. He's outside of our ability to describe him. He's outside of the language that we try and use to wrap around him. He's outside of any words I'm trying to say right now to describe God. He is incomprehensible. He is incontainable. He is holy. That means God is other. He is other than anything that we exist, experience, or imagine. He is totally outside of anything that we experience as a created reality. So God himself is set apart. Now, as part of his set-apartness, God is also set apart from sin. 
He is set apart from evil. That's not all it means for him to be holy, but it is certainly included. He is set apart from all iniquity and anything that would contaminate his holy character. So God is totally righteous. He is absolutely pure. He is absolutely morally perfect. And of course, that's according to his own standard because God sets the standard of what is right and what is just and what is good to begin with. And then he perfectly, his nature perfectly conforms to the standard of what is good and true and right. There is no evil. There is no sin in the being of God. He is set apart from all of that. Now, I'm laying a foundation here so that you can start to see the the journey that we're on. God himself is holy. As a holy God, then, God chooses a people, Israel. And he says to them, if you're going to be my people, I want to call you to be holy as I am holy. That's the call that Israel had. God says, if you're going to be my chosen people, my, my possession, my family, then I want you in your lives, in your life together, in your relationships with one another, I want you to practice this holiness. I want you to reflect the character that, that I have. I want you to be set apart from sin. This is the calling that Israel had. God called them to be set apart, called them to be set apart from the nations, be set apart from the idolatry of the nations, set apart from the immorality of the nations, set apart from the lifestyles of the other nations, set apart to be his people and to follow his law. That's why God gave the law of Moses, not just rules for the sake of rules, but commandments that would enable this people to live a life before God that was holy, that reflected something of the character of God. And so these laws affected the way people relate to each other, the way they do life in community, regulated many different areas of life so that Israel would be a holy people. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know it didn't exactly go that way. It's not that the law was bad, but Israel continually and repetitively failed to live up to that holy calling, didn't they? This is basically the story of the Old Testament is how it goes. God calls this people to be holy and they just, they fall time and time and time again. Continually, Israel is walking away from God. They're turning their backs on God. They're bowing down before other gods. They're practicing things that the nations are doing that God has called them not to do. They're being unfaithful to God. They're failing to worship Him. They're failing to keep the laws that He's put in front of them. They're being an unholy people. And in spite of God sending the prophets to call Israel back to holiness, in spite of God even sending Israel into exile as a judgment for their unholiness, the Old Testament still ends with this big gaping chasm between a holy God and a people who are incredibly unholy, a people who just cannot live up to this holy calling, this righteous calling that God has given them. There's just a canyon between God and his people, and and the Old Testament really ends with a huge question mark over how is this going to be resolved? How is this canyon ever going to be crossed? How is this chasm between God and his people ever going to be bridged? And then we come to the New Testament, and we see exactly how God plans to bring his people to the holiness that he has always desired for them. And Peter gives it to us. He tells us in this chapter how God has done this. He says, have a look down in verse 18. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, 
handed down to you from your ancestors. In other words, that's that, that empty way of life. That's the unholy way of life that those, your, your ancestors in the Old Testament times were living in. That's an empty way of life. But, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So what Peter is saying here is Jesus has come as the one and only one who is truly and perfectly holy. So Jesus is the only person who has ever lived who is utterly and completely holy, totally set apart. He's set apart in his nature because he was God. In him, the fullness of deity dwells, the Bible tells us. And he was totally set apart from all evil, all wrongdoing, all failure, all immorality, all sin. Totally set apart. Now, he, Jesus hung out with some pretty unholy people, right? So it's not that Jesus just lived in a cave somewhere in order to maintain his holiness. He was in amongst it. Like Jesus is having dinner with prostitutes and people who are immoral in all kinds of ways and letting a sinful woman wash his feet. So he didn't mind mixing with people who were very morally questionable. But Jesus was able to do all of that and still maintain absolute integrity before his Father. Maintain absolute holiness. Never once was his own character of holiness ever compromised. He's the only holy person, truly holy person, who has ever lived. And then all of that leads us to the death of Jesus. And that's the point, Peter says, where Jesus became the sacrifice, this lamb. He uses the image of a lamb because a lamb was an animal of sacrifice. And so on the cross, the most extraordinary thing happened. Changed the whole game as far as holiness is concerned. On the cross, what God has done is placed all of your unholiness upon Jesus. All of the ways in which we've failed to be holy, all the ways in which our lives are just shot through with sin and weakness and failure and brokenness and, and immorality and just falling short of the glory of God, God has placed all of that onto Jesus on the cross. So that Jesus died to absorb that. He died to carry that. He died to carry your unholiness. So that in exchange, here is the good news. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God gives you the gift of Jesus' own holiness. The, the, the gift that Jesus alone has earned. The holiness that Jesus alone possesses. When you come to God and place your life in his hands, God says, just as a sheer gift of my grace, I give you the gift of holiness. Like that's not, we don't earn that. And it doesn't automatically mean that we're transformed and our brains are rewired and our behavior is reprogrammed. We are still broken, sinful people. But God says, just as a sheer gift of my grace, I give to you the holiness of Jesus. And that means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have already been made holy. You've got to grasp this before we start talking about being holy in our lifestyle, you've got to start with this reality. Hebrews 10.10 tells us this. You have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. So you and I already have this holy standing before God. That's our foundation. That you are, you are holy not because that you're a good person, not because you're genuinely an okay Christian, not because you're better than the person sitting next to you, you are holy because God looks at you and says you are holy on the basis of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, 
his resurrection. We have that as a gift. We have that security. Nothing's going to change that. You've got to stand upon that truth. I have been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's my standing. Now, here's where Peter pushes in. He says, yeah, that's true. You have this holy standing in Jesus Christ. But alongside that, you also have a holy calling. And we don't like to go here, do we? I'm much happier talking about the holy standing part. But Peter says, yes, but as those who have been made holy, you are now called to live out holiness in your life. You are now called as a believer in Jesus Christ to become in practice what you have been made in reality. You've been made holy and now we are called, it's right there on the page, to be holy, to live a holy life, to outwork holiness in the everyday, ordinary, ebb and flow of our existence. We are called to be holy. That's a calling, let me just be clear about it, that rests on every single Christian. The calling to be holy. Been made holy, but you're called to be holy. Not just a calling for pastors. Not just a calling for elders. Not just a calling for ministers and priests and vicars and bishops. This is a calling for every single Christian. There's a calling for Christians who are auto, automotive mechanics, Michael. There's a calling for people who are business people. Calling for people who are lawyers and doctors and wallpaper hangers and architects and students, retirees, unemployed, calling for people who are stay-at-home mums and dads, every single Christian of every single walk of life, from every single culture and background, has this calling that we are called to be holy. And we don't like to talk about it much. I can tell you're uncomfortable. Because I'm uncomfortable too, because what we prefer to talk about is grace. Right? Now you're relaxing. Grace. You know, let's talk about grace. We talk about grace all day long. And I think what happens is we feel like I just want to talk about the grace stuff and I want to be in the church that's grace-based. And where did all this holiness stuff come from? You know, like some of you are here because you thought we were a grace-based church. You're like, hang on a minute. What's happened? Now we're talking about holiness. That's not me. I'm on the grace team over here. I'm about mercy, love, acceptance, that stuff. Holiness, that feels like works. That feels like legalism, and that feels like being a Pharisee. That's what that feels like, right? I mean, some of you are feeling that at the moment because what you've done in your mind is you've made an enemy of grace and holiness, like they are opposites. You've pitted grace against holiness like they're mutually exclusive. And I want to say to you lovingly that if, you've done, if your view of grace does not lead you to pursue holiness, you, it, what you've got is not grace. What you've got is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. 
Now, let me read you what he says about that. Bonhoeffer was a pastor who lived in Germany under the Nazi regime. He knows a thing or two about being set apart. And he says this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without contrition. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. You hear what he's saying? There's this, this kind of version of grace that we talk about, like grace is really just a shot in the arm when we get saved and that's it. Then it's just basically, I'm, I'm good. I've I'm, I'm just got my ticket to heaven and I can just wait now. I'm, I'm done. I don't really need to think much about how my life might need to change. I don't really think about how God may be wanting to transform my character. That's just not really relevant to my faith. I am saved. That's all that matters. Now I'm good to go. And Bonhoeffer would say to you, that actually, that's a very shrunken up, shriveled up, fraudulent view of grace. What we need, he says, is costly grace. And here's how he describes costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. So he's saying there is a, a grace, there is a biblical view of grace where we are saved and we're accepted by God, and then out of that we hear the call of Jesus to take up your cross and follow me. That's what he said. Take up your cross. That's a call to come and die. Die to yourself. That's a call to crucify the old nature, the old you that just lived this kind of self-governed, self-sufficient, self-obsessed life. It's a call to leave that behind and allow the Holy Spirit gradually to transform our lives into the image of Jesus. It's a call that Peter heard. You can hear that in, in, in his words. The call that Peter had when he was on the beach there mending his nets with his brother Andrew and Jesus said, follow me. And Peter followed. Like that's costly grace. He left his fishing nets. He left his job, effectively. He walked away from that, walked away from his income, walked away from his livelihood, and he just followed Jesus, and he didn't look back. That's costly grace. And so don't start pitting grace against holiness as if they are two different things. Grace is the same grace that saves us as the grace that transforms us. God says to you, I will save you right where you are. I will meet you right where you are, but I love you way too much to leave you right where you are. And once you become my precious son or daughter, you have that holy standing. And guess what? I'm going to get to work in your life. And I'm going to start to mold you and shape you and work on those habits and inclinations and proclivities in your life that are not honoring to me, not lined up with the character that I have. And I want to start shaping and refining you and leading you forward so that gradually you pursue this journey of holiness. And what that means is that you and I have got to start taking seriously our responsibility for personal holiness. I know we don't like to hear it. But this is the call of the gospel, that we are responsible as Christians to live a life of holiness, a life of obedience. Of course, we're never going to get that right. 
Bible says, God who began a good work in you. This work just begins in this life. We never arrive at it, but we are still called in the power of God's Spirit to take steps forward. And it's not good enough to say, well, isn't this just God's responsibility? Isn't He the one that makes me holy? Of course He's the one that makes you holy. It's 100% His responsibility, and it's 100% your responsibility. Because God's not just going to zap you. God's not just going to suddenly, you're going to wake up one morning, and, oh, I'm, here I am, I'm holy. This is something that we need to submit to the work of the Spirit in our life. Of course, it's only going to be by the power of the Spirit. Of course, it's only going to be by the power of God's Word. But it is also something that you need to take personal responsibility for in your life to say, I am going to be set apart from those ways of living, thinking, speaking, acting, and being that are contrary to the will of God in my life. I know that's a hard message to hear. This is where 1 Peter leads us. Now, let's try and make this practical in our lives. There's some things that Peter says here, which I think really ground it for us. Thinking through what holiness looks like in the ins and outs of everyday life. Have a look at verse 22. He says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, I think we're really good as Christians at doing the tick box thing. Like, yep, I love people. I follow Jesus. Of course, I love people. I love everyone. You know, and we are, we're so good at, as Christians at being vague, aren't we? Vague is so comfortable because it leaves us free of having to make specific applications to our lives. But, you know, I mean, I'm challenged by this. That at, on the very day I was writing this message, as I was working through the passage and looking at this verse, uh, the same day I was catching up with, with a friend. And... I won't say too much about it, but other than to say, this, this is not, it's not a guy that I have found easy to love. Now, to be fair, he probably doesn't find me easy to love either, so it goes both ways, right? But, you know, I, I was challenged as I read that verse. And I thought, man, it's easy for me to tick box on this. You know, yes, I love people, but am I loving this guy when it's hard? And so I tried that afternoon as I, as I caught up with him to be a little bit more present, to be, it's none of you, by the way, to be a little, bit, a little bit more gracious than I have been in the past, to be a little bit kinder. And, and I, I, still, I think I still failed. I, you know, I think I still probably had an air of superiority about me, sadly. Um, and even now, I'm, I'm really just using him as a sermon illustration, aren't I? So, I mean, I, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm a... I'm a I'm, I'm, man, I just feel like a big, fat hypocrite up here today, really talking about holiness. I'm I getting it wrong time and time again. But I was challenged, and I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to press into the specific situations of life, the people that we find difficult to love. Let's think about them, not just a bland commitment to love everybody. That's easy. It's harder when you think about people that are really difficult to love, people that are annoying, people, yeah, we don't need to go into it. But you think of the people in your life that that might apply to. Now, have a look. Here's why I wanted to press into that uh, first verse of chapter 2. Because this connects to the same conversation. Just have a look at these areas of sin again that Peter lists. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Again, really easy to tick box, right? Yeah, I think I'm good on those. I can't see anything there that's a problem. I'm, I'm great. Let me just give you some examples. Uh, Think about a time when you're sitting around with a friend talking about a transgender person that you know or a gay person you know of or a bisexual person that you know of and you roll your eyes and you talk about how silly they are 
and what a mess they're making of their life. You know what that's called? Malice. That's just mean. I think about a time when you send out an email to all your employees, telling them everything's great, very selective information is given, and there's a whole lot of information not given that paints a different kind of picture. Do you know what that's called? Deceit. Parents, think about all the conversations you have with your kids about the dangers of social media and then the hours you spend scrolling through Facebook <laughs> and Instagram. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. I'm just working down the list here, people. Uh, think about that person that you think is a lot more attractive than you and how you secretly hope for bad things for them and secretly hope maybe they'll develop an eating disorder or something like that. You know what that's called? Envy. Think about conversation you have with a friend about some relationship that's busted up and you start speculating on all the reasons why that is the case and mistakes that he probably made and what she probably said and how they probably just got what they deserved. You fill in all the gaps even though you don't have half the story. You know what that's called? Slander. You know the worst part about all that? You just managed to apply that to five other people besides yourself. I know what you're thinking. You know, man, I wish my, wish my husband was here today. I'm going to send this podcast to my friend, you know. They really need to hear this stuff, you know. That's what we do. So then you can just add another one to the list, self-righteousness. That's what happens, you know. Why don't we just listen to the words of Jesus when he said, how about taking the log out of your own eye for a minute rather than the speck out of your brother's eye? Don't apply it to a whole lot of other people. Apply it to yourself and think through what this means to you. Those examples may or may not connect with you, but I think the point is we can be okay at dealing with the really big things in life and the really big sins. What about the everyday? Because the holiness is everyday. Holiness is outworked in the nitty-gritty of life in a million different decisions that you and I make all the time. And I want to encourage you to think even now, what are the areas of life that God may just be nudging you to work on and saying, hey, by, by my spirit, there's something here that I want to bring change into your life. There's a habit here. There's something the way you treat people, the way you react in situations. There's something here I want to change. You know, maybe, maybe it's an anger issue for you. Maybe it's lies that you're telling, just little lies, and you think it's okay. You can get away with it. It's not a big deal. Maybe it's impurity. Maybe there's some kind of sexual addiction that's going on for you. Maybe lust. And you're okay because you think it's just in your head. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's not seen, so it must be all right. Maybe it's laziness for you. You're just, you're just lazy. Maybe it's greed. You just, in your heart of hearts, you know, you're really just driven by money more than anything else. Maybe it's the way you treat other people. Maybe it's just rudeness. The way you speak to people in your own house. Maybe that's just rude. And if God's putting his finger on an area of your life, it's not to condemn you. It's not to say, I want you to feel really guilty and, and full of shame. It's to say, I want to make you holy. I want to bring holiness into this area of your life. You've been ignoring it for too long. You've been putting it to the side for too long. And some of you, I think even now, the Holy Spirit's nudging you and saying, hey, there's work to be done here. There's work to be done. And by God's grace, you can move forward in that area. I know we are going to get this wrong so many more times than we get it right, right? I know. 
I get it wrong so many more times than I get it right. I'm convicted about that, even as I stand here before you this morning. That is why I wanted to lay such a strong foundation of our holy standing. Because when you do mess up and stuff up and screw up, that's what you've got to come back to. That's not a time to wallow in self-pity. That's the time to come back and say, I know that in spite of my complete inability to do this, I am loved and I'm accepted and I'm cherished by God. I'm held in his hands. Nothing's ever going to change that. But it means also being willing to hear the conviction of the Spirit who was saying to some of you this morning, this is a season of growth for you. It's not going to be enough just to stay as you are. You come as you are, but you don't stay as you are. This is a time to be transformed. There's some habits that need to be changed. There's some ways of thinking and ways of acting, maybe ways of speaking to other people that need to change. And God's putting his finger on it for some of you this morning. But never, ever, ever do that out of some sense of just trying to earn God's approval or trying to earn his favor or thinking that this is going to make him more pleased with you. We don't do this to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can ever do to earn our salvation. But it does require effort. And God's not opposed to that. You know, the Bible says, make every effort to be holy. It's right there. Dallas Willard says, God's not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. You don't earn your salvation, but we are called to put effort into holiness. And we do it by the Spirit of God, and we do it with the help of the people of God in our life. You need people around you. You need community. You need some accountability if you're going to take these steps. And gradually, I don't think you can measure it in days. I think you measure it in years, maybe even decades. But as you trust the Lord and you walk with Him, and you walk in confession and repentance, as you do fall into sin, or walk into sin, you come back to God again, and say, God, I'm sorry. He sets you back on your feet. He sends you out back into the ring for another round because he knows that you can do it. And over time, over the years, over the decades, you will see progress in your life. You'll never get there the side of heaven. But one day when you stand before God, he will complete that work in you. It will be by his grace. It's never going to happen in this life. But he still calls you to take one little baby step forward after one little step towards holiness. So I want to just open up a space as we, as we finish and before we head into communion just to take a couple of minutes to let God speak to us, which might be dangerous based on what we've just said, but I encourage you to open up your heart and pray a dangerous prayer, the prayer that David prayed when he said, search me, O God, and test my thoughts. The problem is half the sin in our life we're not even aware of because we're so easily self-deceived people. We don't even know the things that God may be wanting to deal with. And so this is a time just to posture ourselves before God and say, God, shine the spotlight of your spirit into my life deeply and, and highlight what you want to highlight and bring to mind what you want to bring to mind and show me. David says, let me see if there is any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. And if God does raise something, in your mind during this time, there's a particular area, then name that to him, confess that to him, receive his grace afresh for that. Thank you for, for his mercy. Thank him for his grace. Thank him for his forgiveness and renew your commitment to walking in the power of the Spirit in that area of your life. And then we are going to take communion together and man, we're going to need it today. So Grant, I'm going to ask you just to come and play quietly if that's all right. And let's just open up a space for a couple of minutes of silence. So we let God work in our hearts and then uh, I'll pray to lead us into communion. communion.
Holy Spirit, we trust that you're at work in our lives. I thank you even now you're just moving in the hearts of, of people, just raising what you want to surface in our lives. And God, I, I, I pray that you would deal with us gently. We're so weak and uh, we're so broken, God. We have this desire, God, a desire for holiness, a desire for godliness. We feel so inadequate, Lord. We fall so far short. In some ways, it feels like such a mountain to climb. But I thank you, Jesus, that you have climbed that mountain for us. And that's what matters, that you've climbed the hill called Golgotha. And there you died to take all of our failure upon yourself. And so, God, let us just walk out of that deep place of grace remembering just how loved we are by you. I pray it would always be your grace that moves us forward. Never a sense of legalism, never a desperate sense of of trying to earn your favor, but just humble gratitude for all you have done for us and a desire to be conformed into the image of your Son. We thank you, God, that you are for us and not against us, that you are with us on this journey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.